It is Friday the 14th of February and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson reshuffles the government. We hear what his end goal is. Well, he was always going to do a major reshuffle because immediately after the general election, he decided to keep the cabinet that he'd had before the election in place. But everyone knew that that was only a short-term affair. Plus, a look ahead to the Munich Security Conference that begins today. I am Markus Hippie in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. In Britain, Boris Johnson yesterday carried out the first major reshuffle of his ministers since being elected prime minister in December. However, everything didn't go according to Johnson's plan. Chancellor Zajid Javid resigned, rejecting an order to fire his team of political aides. Political commentator Lance Price joins me now. Lance, why did Boris Johnson think the cabinet reshuffle was necessary? Well, he was always going to do a major reshuffle because immediately after the general election, when he had his hands full with the uh, final Brexit uh, withdrawal, he decided to keep the cabinet that he'd had before the election in place. But everyone knew that that was only a short-term affair. So there were some people who were going to leave the government anyway, notably uh, Baroness Morgan, who's in charge of the culture department or was in charge of the culture department, until yesterday. And it was always signaled that there was going to be quite a significant reshuffle. Then it was indicated that perhaps it wouldn't be quite so significant after all. And then, of course, it's turned out to be a bigger affair than people were expecting. Now, you were Tony Blair's director of communications when he was prime minister. So I would imagine you've seen what happens behind the scenes. Lance, how does a cabinet reshuffle happen? Well, it starts off basically with the equivalent of a whiteboard, maybe in some circumstances an actual whiteboard with the names of the cabinet up there and the significant changes that you want to make. And the prime minister first has to decide what are the really important changes he he wants to put into effect, the ones that he's not prepared to compromise on, because if it's a fairly wide reshuffle like this one was, then as things progress, there's almost always something goes wrong. Somebody doesn't want to move. Somebody doesn't accept uh, an alternative job that they're offered. And you literally go to the whiteboard and scrub out names and write in some different ones. And what happens after that? Well, then, of course, you get the main jobs in the cabinet in place. And if it goes relatively smoothly, you can do that fairly quickly because you're not moving that many people around. But as soon as you've done that, of course, you've brought new people into the cabinet. So they had jobs previously lower down the ranks. Those jobs have to be filled by somebody else. So what starts off as a relatively small and straightforward exercise in changing the faces around the cabinet table becomes much more complex as you have to shift people around in the junior positions that work to those cabinet ministers. How brutal can these reshuffles be? For example, in this case, it's been, it's been said in the public that some ministers who had to go, they hadn't done a good job in Johnson's opinion. Yes, well, that's that's true. And and uh, Boris Johnson has shown himself to be a pretty ruthless shuffler of his cabinet. When he first became prime minister, he cleared out a whole raft of very senior ministers, many of them with a lot of experience, including Jeremy Hunt, the man who'd run against him for the leadership of the party. He was out because he wouldn't accept the job that he was offered. So Boris Johnson has shown himself to be pretty brutal. 
Now, can you see any signs of which direction Prime Minister Johnson wants to take the country, looking at those new names in the government and looking at those individuals where to go? Well, I think the important thing about it is that he has appointed people who will be very, very loyal to him. So the direction in which he wants to take the government, I think he's made quite clear, and the country, I think he's made quite clear. He does think that there needs to be a levelling up between the south of the country and the north of the country. Uh, I think he has shown himself concerned to look after the interests of working class voters, particularly in the north, but also elsewhere in the country who voted Conservative, perhaps for the first time at the last election back in December. So he's got quite a radical uh, agenda there, and he wants people in place who are completely signed up to that. And that has been his trademark all the way through since he's become prime minister and leader of the Conservative Party, absolute loyalty to him and a willingness to go along with the way he and his senior advisor, Dominic Cummings, want to run the government overall. Now, the big surprise yesterday was the resignation of Sajid Javid. His successor as Chancellor is Rishi Sunak. How much can you tell us about him? Well, he's a bit of an unknown in that he's only been a member of parliament for five years or so, a bit less than five years. He came in in the general election in 2015, but he had a very impressive record before that, a very good degree in philosophy, politics and economics, a good career in industry as well and has really shone since he's been in Parliament. So he's rapidly moved up the ministerial ladder. He was a a junior housing minister, then he went to the Treasury to be Sajid Javid's number two. And of course, when Sajid Javid wasn't prepared to go along with the idea that it should be number 10 who appoints his advisors, uh, the Chancellor's advisors, rather than him, then it was clear that Mr Sunak was the obvious person to step up from the number two position within the Treasury. But it's a massive promotion for a man who, as I say, hasn't been even a member of Parliament for five years yet. Lance Price, thank you very much. Let's next hear from Monocle's Ed Stoker, who is looking ahead to this weekend's Munich Security Conference. The Munich Security Conference, which starts today, is often heralded as the Davos of defence conflabs. And yet, there's a sense of undeniable malaise when it comes to global events like these. Last year, for example, the chairman of the conference wrote that the whole liberal world order appears to be falling apart, while this year we can expect a debate on a central theme of Westlessness. The premise that Western nations are facing a crisis of confidence in who they are and how they should orientate themselves, bouncing between liberal internationalism and resurgent nationalism with its often accompanying isolationist fallout. Sounds like doom and gloom, the Munich conference is unquestionably reflecting the uncertainty that is dominating international institutions, but now is the time to act decisively. With the US displaying what can only be labelled an unpredictable foreign policy, oscillating between withdrawing troops from Syria amid international scorn, President Trump has signalled that he wants to do the same in Afghanistan, and the highly interventionalist assassination of Iranian number two, General Qassem Soleimani, on foreign soil. The European Union could choose to step into this void. How? Of course, many nations within the bloc 
have their own domestic problems, but demonstrating a strong, coherent and most importantly unified foreign policy would be a start. And then there's Brexit. Any hope of close cooperation between the UK and the EU over international affairs have been dashed, at least in part, by London's decision to send a junior minister to the Bavarian city instead of Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. As the UK seeks to find its own place in a world of westlessness, such downgraded attendance at the biggest multilateral gathering since it left the EU last month is surely not a good look. My thanks to Ed Stocker. Then elsewhere on today's agenda, the United States and the Taliban are reportedly close to implementing a temporary ceasefire that could pave the way for talks to end the 18-year-long war in Afghanistan. The conflict is the most protracted in U.S. history and has cost more than $2 trillion and claimed the lives of thousands of the country's service members. With coronavirus cases on the rise globally, the plight of two cruise ships in Asia, the MS Westerdam, which arrived in Cambodia on Thursday, and the Diamond Princess quarantined in Japan for over a week, raises questions about the wider industry's near-term prospects. Asia ranks low among destinations, amounting to only 10% of the itineraries for over 270 cruise ships worldwide, according to Cruise Lines International Association. However, Asia makes up a higher percentage of passengers worldwide, with more than 4 million annually hailing from the continent. So far, only the Diamond Princess has confirmed cases of the virus, but with countries in Asia denying MS Westerdam and other cruise ships entry to their port, and with Japan imposing strict quarantine conditions aboard the Diamond Princess, bookings in the region will take a hit. And for most of us, a trip to the garden centre has long been a pleasurable weekend experience. Yet the green-thumbed entrepreneurs and CEOs pioneering this industry are faced with multiple challenges. This came to a head at the Garden Retail Experience, a major industry event which wrapped up yesterday in Amsterdam. Here problems such as plant price wars and the challenges around sustainability were discussed. Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I am Markus Hippi. The Monocle Minute returns on Monday.